0: The curmudgeon rock report curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon rock gods do it right
1: so do rock nerds we're here for the rock 1965 2021
0: doesn't matter crude rude yet somehow sophisticated welcome Enjoy the show.
1: This will be a good episode because hopefully my marriage will not be a one-hit wonder. Uh, keep that in mind. <laughs> or uh, a
0: one-and-donner. <laughs>
1: or, or a one and donor. And so that just gives you a taste of what's coming. In the meantime, hello, Arturo Andrade, uh, dropping in from Gwangju, South Korea. What's going on?
0: Good man, it's good. Um, it's evening time over here where I'm at, so it's it's the first time I've done an episode in the evening. So yeah, which, well, uh, mean, yeah, which, which, means, which means, means I'm pretty tired. <laughs> yeah,
1: which which means I'm pushing nine a.m. in uh, in here in Houston, and I'm pretty tired too. But yeah. we decided to do this uh, kind of as an as an experiment to see how it how it goes the other way around. Yeah. So uh, let you know, let's uh, let's see what happens. So yeah yeah and uh you know interest interesting musical time for me only because uh i am just coming off my first dance research, but also I've been sort of listening to some of my my favorite uh stuff lately as a uh, as a warm up and as a a way to not necessarily pump my ads but just to sort of get myself in a nice emotional state to go uh into the rest of uh, of of my life uh you know, besides uh, what we're about to talk about, any, any, anything on, on your radar, you know, just, you know, what, what's tickling your
0: fancy right now? Well, what's tickling my fancy is the album I'm going to recommend in our Parallel Universe segment.
1: to the parallel universe no it's not a not it's not a star trek concept it is where our turtle and i talk about the albums that should be huge if rock was still huge in this world and we didn't have uh the auto-tune stuff and we live in a world where even where even the country music is electrified and has no chord changes uh it's a (laughs) it's a little bit scary uh so Arturo, uh take us into the fifth dimension and tell us what you got.
0: Well, in a parallel universe where rock radio were still a thing, the new album by this guy would be getting some play on FM or AOR radio. And uh unfortunately he isn't and won't. <laughs> he won't. Mm-hmm. But um uh the name this guy is a Canadian singer songwriter named Whitney K. Uh, He's been around for a while, and uh, his latest album, it's called Two Years, uh, comes highly recommended from my usual music bible, Mojo Magazine, and it is indeed very good. The music is essentially really very raw, almost lo-fi in its sound quality, and it takes on classic Americana music forms such as electric blues, folk, and country. Now, while thousands of artists have tackled these music forms in the past, what makes Whitney Kay's attempt a bit more distinct than others is, yes, of course, the down-home rawness, but also his subversion of the classic folk and country tropes with his smart, wry, dry humor lyrics and his slightly detached sing-speak approach to vocals full of attitude and brashness. What comes across is something akin to Lou Reed doing an American roots music album. If you can imagine that, um, the Reed comparison is especially apt in and sta- standout track. This pipe toward the end of the record, which employs a droning violin much in the same way John Cale did with his viola on the first velvet underground album. And with a slightly plucked country strum on his acoustic guitar, Whitney employs a very distinctly Reed-esque whine to his voice as he tackles the traditional Oh, Woe is Me country lament with lyrics that express express the futility of life, how there's nothing to live for, and that the only thing to look forward to is waking up in the morning and smoking crack. Hmm. Hence Hence the name of the song, This Pipe, although it could be crystal meth. I'm not really quite sure what the drug is, but it is a drug he's alluding to. Um, the overt reference to drug use, um, a trope of rock music that Blue Reed basically pioneered, shows up again in a track called Mirror the Party, number 165, where he asks his lover, who do you love, Mirror the Party? You know, The implication, of course, is questioning whether she wants to be at the party with him or does she just want to be at the party and do drugs? And cocaine is referenced earlier in the track. Another highlight um, is the one tr- song I recommended to you, Chris, the Boogie Chuglin Rocker Trans Canada Oil Boom Blues, which should be the single, would be in a parallel universe where Whitney K sounds like, you guessed it, Lou Reed and his slightly detuned guitar with Credence Clearwater Revival as his backing band. That's what it sounds like. Um, this so far is my favorite rock album of the year.
1: So uh, I get the assignment of one of the more uh, interesting bands in the world. and uh, you know, like a lot of uh, things lately, Arturo turned me onto this band uh, and I've kind of followed them since. Uh, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Uh, you know,
0: it's, it's, it's a real ship oh, it's a real shame the, that you know one of the real shames of CoVID is that King Gizzard were starting to break through. Um, mm-hmm. maybe not quite mainstream but they were breaking through to a much bigger audience King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard like uh before covid they had lined up tour dates to play Red Rocks Yeah and yeah. they it, sold it out
1: <laughs> Yeah I was going to say that would have been a crazy ass show I can I can just imagine them at at Red Rocks I didn't know that but it makes sense cuz here's the thing about King Gizzard really really smart band yeah. and they mix it up I mean every, they, it's fair to say that no two King Gizzard records are the same. Yeah. Uh, Which is to say they're not all great. Uh, I think it was 17 or 18 that they're, they're one of these bands that we've complained about in uh, uh, earlier episodes. If you check out our debut episodes, Arturo talked about this a lot about these bands that release too much stuff. Uh, They had a record, they had a year where they legitimately uh, released five records in one year. And Which only three neat. of
0: only three of them were good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's never a good idea to release five albums in one year unless you're Neil Young and you have like you know fifty years worth of archives. Then you can do that because yeah. they're at least they'll at least be fascinating. Uh, but but anyway, when, when Ken Gizzard is disciplined, they're one of the best bands in the world. Yeah. Um, and this new album uh, is their second disciplined record in a row. Uh, they it comes out of the same uh, recording sessions, really. Uh, there were several bands and several artists, uh, at the top of the food chain was Taylor Swift, but there were a lot of bands that took the lockdown as a, as a, um, catalyst for creativity. It's like, okay, well, if we can't go on shows and we can't go outside, well, you know what we ought to do? We ought to like write songs and get focused and do some good albums. And Ken Gizzard definitely did that. Uh, so last year's album was called KG. KG. And not surprisingly, this this year's record is called L.W. Uh, uh, King, gizzard, lizard, wizard, if you're uh, not uh, uh, inclined to read acronyms. Uh, so uh, this record uh, is really interesting. Uh, it's part of a uh, I guess it's a trilogy now. Right. Uh, in, in my research where uh, they're playing with what they call microtonal uh uh writings and uh, or writing and rhythms now uh i'll try to do this quickly but uh me look you know i am I'm, I'm your classic uh music geek/ slash, uh old school rock critic where half of us are guitar players frustrated guitar players in uh bands that play half the time and the rest of us are dreamers yeah. and uh we make better reviewers by the way because we don't understand music theory uh, and so we're, you know, so we're very dreamy, but
0: a lot of musicians I, don't understand music theory.
1: <laughs> that's true. Uh, one, w- one of whom it, you know, the most famous one of those is Paul McCartney, uh, you know, self-taught, but anyway, I wanted to do some research on this. So, uh, where do you go? Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And so, uh, some of you will understand this and I will eventually figure this one out myself. So, what is microtonal music? Uh, microtonal music, comma, music using tones in intervals that differ from the standard semitones, in parentheses half steps, of a tuning system or scale. In the division of the octave established by the tuning system used on the piano, equal temperament, the smallest interval, e.g. between B and C, F and F major, uh, A minor and A, is the semitone an interval also measured as 100 cents. Uh, There are thus 12 equal semitones, or 12,000 cents, to the the octave. These in sequence constitute the chromatic scale. Western tuning systems that were more common before about 1700 divided the octave into semitones of varying size. Although the term microtonal suggests that such music departs from a norm, most of the world's music of both past and present times uses intervals greater or smaller than 100 cents. South Asian music theory posits a scale of 22 equal unequal intervals to the octave. Although in practice a chromatic scale of 100 cent intervals is used, ornaments use uses use intervals of smaller size. In Indonesian music, interval of many sizes appear including those of a slendro scale which sometimes divides an octave into five equal intervals of roughly 240 cents each. Essential in Middle Eastern music are intervals of 150 cents or three quarter tones and 250 cents, five quarter tones along with half and whole tones, 100 and 200 cents. Some 20th century Middle Eastern theory builds intervals from combinations in ancient Greek theory as comma, 24 cents and Lima, 90 cents. Now, the email is curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. I want, <laughs> I, I want all of you Berkeley music types that uh, listen to this podcast to write us and interpret that uh, so that we better understand
0: it. Basically, I can, put, I, I can put it in layman terms. Basically what they did, because I'm a big fan of this band, what they did is that they got their guitars and they tuned them to or uh, in some cases they 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 modified their guitars for microtonal tuning and they tuned them so they can sound like a baglama. A baglama is a traditional Turkish stringed instrument. And Turkish music, because of where it is in its location geographically in the Mediterranean, almost in the Middle East, um, their folk music is very close to Middle Eastern folk music. So a lot of the guitar tones and the guitar playing and the melodies that come up on this album, LW, the previous one, KG, and of course, the first microtonal album they did, 2017's brilliantly named Flying Microtonal Banana, (laughs) of their, those instruments are tuned to sound like a bog So it has a very strong Middle Eastern tone. And that's basically what King Gizzard is going for on this record. It's basically slightly psychedelic progressive rock or art rock with a very strong Middle Eastern tone sound. And, and
1: yes, uh, Arturo, uh, said it smartly, but that's where I was going next. Yeah. that um, this probably explains the Middle Eastern and Turkish Turkish influences on some of the rhythms uh here uh this is a fascinating record because there is that uh, that Eastern slant and that sort of uh, exoticism of like he said that sort of uh, uh, you know, the the record the guitars toned for uh, uh for Turkey uh it, and it, it's actually kind of interesting uh, that a couple of these uh their time signatures, they get into five, four and seven eights quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it reminded me a little bit, not quite as wacky, but uh, reminded me a little bit of system of a down actually. In yeah. A couple of spots. yeah. Sure, but, sure. But to talk about this record specifically, it's really interesting because you do get those exotic, almost Eastern rhythms, but there's a, there's a plaintive psychedelia that, that harkens back to, uh, um, I would say more early seventies and maybe some San Francisco. Uh, there's a, f- a few points where they have vocal harmonies that uh, no joke, remind me of the association, which <laughs> is one of the most grossly underrated bands of all time. Uh, so, you know, here and then they they also uh, one of their big themes, they have two, basically two themes. It's um, the uh, darkness of the soul and the battle internally, but they also do a lot of ecology. Yeah. And so uh, getting into some of the highlights, uh, there's the album opener uh, called If Not When Then, uh, which uh, the, it's basically there's two parts. There's a the interesting thing is it starts off with this electric piano falsetto R&B opener, which is, you know, in, in some ways is almost closer to Jamiroquai than Metallica, which I know is an influence on this band. Uh, and then it turns into kind of a reggae inspired jam. Uh, with it has this really crisp toned lead, uh, playing, uh, which in a way, structurally, it reminded me of of the dead's mid 70s period. Uh, so in some ways, it can be looked at as a party tune, but because of that, um, sort of lyrical uh, haze, you don't really get a sense of uh, the bleak, the bleakness uh, of the lyrics, yeah, which, which really. You know, kind of hooking off to their last record with stuff like Planet B. Uh Obviously, it's not. Well, th-
0: that's two records ago at this point. <laughs> two records ago.
1: Yeah. yeah. Th- that's the part with King Gizzard. It's really hard to keep score. Uh yeah. Arturo is one of the probably the five people in the world that does keep score on King Gizzard. Well, I mean, because because it's album, hard.
0: Their album from 2019, Infest the Rats Nests. That is kind of like their breakthrough crossover album, sure. because it is so unique in their catalog. It's nothing like what you're describing now. No, in it's F- not. In it, F- it's-, F- it's a thrash metal record, straight yes. up. Yeah, and
1: and, and uh, it's unapologetically influenced by early Metallica. It's very and, Kill- and oh. Motorhead. <laughs> yeah, and Motorhead, but it's yeah. very like you know, it's very Kill 'Em All. It's and it's very in some parts even Ride the Lightning.
0: But, yeah, and, uh, and, and, and the lyrics in that album are very, very much a concept album about like how, you know, uh, pl- climate change is destroying the earth and yes. like everybody trying to get on spaceships and leave the earth and find another planet.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that kind of carries over here yeah. uh, to, you know, at the beginning of this record, you think it's going to be another uh, ecological concept record because it starts off. If not now, then when? When the forest's nearly gone? When the holes in the ozone? When the bees are gone? If not now, then when? When the ocean's coming up? When the rain just won't stop? When the fire's burning? If not now, uh, yeah. then when? Uh, other other highlights here. Um, they've got um, they've got Plura, which again has that sort of stage, whispery harmony thing that goes back to San Francisco. Uh, you've got um, Static Electricity, which has this sort of dramatic. Uh, acoustic opener you know from like sort of it's almost like jethro tall or even early metallica where they dabbled with that and then it comes into this sort of poppy thing where with drum fills that ringo would be proud of <laughs> uh, then obviously you get a song called east west link which you know is self-explanatory which has the the middle eastern vibes and then i think the best song on it um, lyrically is definitely ataraxia uh, ataraxia is actually a real word. It's not phony baloney progress yet. Uh, it's, um, basically ataraxia is a tran It's a Greek concept that is tranquility. It's, uh, sort of non despair. Uh, and it's all about, you know, they're basically down in the dumps. It's almost like Psalm 42 in the Bible. Oh, I'm downcast and I'm looking for tranquility. Um, so who knows? I mean, this is a band. I wouldn't be surprised if that actually is an influence because uh, they are, uh, of these kind of bands, um, of the young bands, they are by far the most intellectual uh, of these bands. Oh, yeah. and so, Which makes them really fascinating. Arturo, yes. uh, we, we kind of said it, uh, one and done. Uh, what do we mean by one and done? And we're not talking about Kevin Durant. One, one and done, what do we mean? It's one and
0: dunners. Basically, the concept is that there seems to be a certain niche of bands slash artists, in this episode's case, bands, who had amazing debut albums that were either commercially successful or critically successful or both, who then proceeded to have a lackluster career from their second album onward. These are bands who either, either never fully realized the potential of their first album, or never did anything nearly as good as their first album or flat out fell off a cliff and sucked after their incredible debut. So we're going to do a countdown. Um, of course I'll take the lead in half of them. Chris will take the lead in the other half and we're going to list these bands and give our takes on these one and done bands, great debut albums and just disappointment afterward.
1: Yeah. And, uh, here, here's my take and and we'll, we'll have a few, uh, dialectics in this uh the disappointment of following some of these records is not necessarily equal bad records uh, right
0: right, yeah that's and true. so that's true yeah and basically we're going by a general critical consensus
1: yeah that, yeah of- that's true yeah. yeah that's true i mean uh i think uh in some ways uh, well you know if, if you count them i'm Pretty sure that almost all of these uh, albums showed up in. Uh, uh, well, two things. I think they're all in the to, the top five hundred uh, just put out uh, or updated by Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And uh, top five hundred best debut albums ever. Is that what it is? No, no, no. It's the top five hundred of all time. Oh, I, th- I think all ten of them are in it. No, uh, they're
0: not. No, 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 no. I, okay. I, they're not. I can tell the only ones that are in it are. I can tell and count them now. I'm, I'm looking at the list. Only three of oh. these 10.
1: Oh, okay. Well, okay. I was wrong about that. But they also, back in 2013, did a top 50 debut records yeah. of all time. And most of these, most are, of are, these are on right, it. For yeah. Sure. And so, you know, that's for sure. So these are these are albums that are, uh, some of them are definitely canonical. Uh, you probably revere them. And uh, in a few of these instances, there's. I can think of two or three instances. Uh, some of you will vehemently disagree and again, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. We're also Twitter curmudgeonpod. Uh, we would at, love- At, cur-
0: at curmudgeon pod.
1: Well, at pod, but, but basically it's Twitter, twitter.com uh, slash curmudgeonpod. Uh, so uh, we we definitely want to get a conversation going with y'all because uh, that's the whole point. We're not doing this for us. We're doing this for the universe. Uh, you know, we're kind of like, uh, uh, rock and roll ain't quite jazz yet, but uh, but we're doing our best to preserve the, uh, the dialogues. Damn, those guys looked good on camera. Damn, those guys could dance. Damn, were those guys rock stars. Without Michael Jackson or Prince, one could argue that we don't get the glitzy, glammy 10,000-watt 1980s we revere. But who did it better? Granted, that's like asking whether last night's orgasm was better than the one from last week. Still, who would you pick? I'll take Michael Jackson. Why? Because Prince was mysterious and mystifying. While Michael was just in your face like a sweaty, grunting, yet somehow graceful monster, I'll take the latter. Arturo will argue loudly for the former, and soon will on this podcast. In the meantime, do you prefer the glittering glove or the purple fog? Let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. So, so, as we said, we're counting down uh, the most interesting one in Dunner's, that is the people that had amazing debuts and then never got back to that uh, either because they, uh, uh, the critics gave up on them or they just plain old sucked. And so Arturo will kick off the list and like we do, we do a, a countdown format. So what do you have for number 10 there, sir?
0: Number 10 on the list is The Fiery Furnaces. Now, this is a band that hasn't put out an album in a little over a decade and they were going to reunite for the Pitchfork Festival in 2020, but then the coronavirus hit the world and the entire touring industry got put on hold, as we spoke about two podcasts ago. Right Now, this band, these guys are, are well, brother and sister, they aren't widely popular, but they are critic, critical darlings, and they have a bit of a cult following, and anyone who's a music geek knows who they are. Uh, Eleanor and Matthew Friedberger are a brother-sister duo, a real one, not a fake one like the White Stripes, (laughs) uh, from a suburb of Chicago, but they formed the band in Brooklyn, New York in 2000. Their debut album from 2003, uh, called Gallows Bird's Bark, is one of the most singular, original, and visionary rock albums of the 2000s. With a lot of rock music of the 21st century, it's 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 a very easy it's very easy to play a game of spot the influences with it. Uh, with many albums in in the, in the 21st century, but it's very hard to do so with The Furnaces' first album, which can be generally classified as progressive indie pop. If I had to break it down influence-wise and describe their initial sound, it would be a hybrid of Wilco at their most experimental with a bit of the kinks, hyper melodic late 60s music hall vamps, and with the quirky humor and propulsive drive of Sparks uh, or Sparks's 1970s peak, and a touch of guitar driven garage rock. Nobody has sounded anything like them since, really. Then came the rest of their discography. (laughs) Their follow-up album, uh, 2004's Blueberry Boat, was heavy on keyboards and synthesizer-based psychedelic sound, but really light on the songwriting that propelled the first album. It only got worse from there. (laughs) They proceeded to put out a series of albums that indulged in complexity for complexity's sake, the surefire sign of a band that's overthinking and desperately trying to prove its musicianship credentials while paying no heed to Songcraft and what was so appealing about them in the first place. They would lose themselves down the progressive rock wormhole with unlistenable, atonal, and dissonant art pop, while lyrically they dived, dived or delved into. One conceptual story after another, most of whom lost all semblance of narrative sense midway through, except probably to the Friedbergers themselves. The worst case of this was on 2006's Rehearsing My Choir, a concept album with spoken word vocals telling the life story of their immigrant grandmother, with the grandmother herself featured on some of the tracks. Musically, it's a train wreck, with the music underdeveloped, incoherent, and lacking any kind of focus. The irony of it all is that their last album they did before their hiatus, uh, 2009's I'm Going Away, is a splendid piece of sunshine pop. Considering the heavy influence that 1970s California Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter rock would have on Eleanor Friedberger's ensuing solo career, it seems she took the reins for this album and had the band produce God Forbid – Beautifully melodic songs loaded with catchy hooks, one smart love song after another. By this time, though, critics had soured on the band and they'd lost a big chunk of their audience, resulting in, in in the album being generally ignored. But, hey, we'll always have that sterling debut album. Chris, what do you think? The thing
1: about the fiery furnaces, and I think you just hit the nail on the head, uh, is that they're... Uh their career as a band was, was sort of a uh, battle of wills between Eleanor Friedberger and Matt Friedberger. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can really kind of just look at it at, at, as, at that uh, where, you know, Eleanor was the songstress and uh, for what it's worth, just beautiful voice and, and yeah. just, and just a great expressive singer. Uh, one of the better uh, female rock vocalists of the 2000s. And she's uh, not quite Linda Thompson, who's basically one of the best, if not the best, um, uh, soft, you know, of this kind of genre, of this sort of uh, uh, introspective pop kind of stuff, um, is one of the best vocalists of all time, as we kind of established in the last episode. Uh, I will say this. Uh, I agree with most of what Art said, but I am a fan of Blueberry Boat. Uh, Blueberry Boat, I, I, you know, it's the kind of album I kind of like because it's, I like these adventurous, uh, albums, uh, sometimes that aren't necessarily, uh, your orthodox song cycles. And so, uh, from an objective point of view, you can never really say that it's a great collection of songs or a great, um, like this, you know, Sterling, uh, mastered and sequenced record. Uh, but kind of like Anthem of the sun by the dead, it's, you have to, if you look at the album in terms of its pieces, uh, it's fantastic. And so it, you get these, uh, the song blueberry boat, which has this sort of like sort of woozy, uh, sort of purposefully woozy, uh, uh, dark, uh, almost blues type of thing, but with a great vocal by Eleanor Friedberger. But then the record, it kind of veers in between this kind of uh, kick-ass jamming by Matt Friedberger, who is a very gifted guitarist, Um, and you mix in some sea shanty stuff, and then once in a while, you just get these stunning, out of nowhere, beautiful uh, Eleanor Friedberger, met melodic. Uh, singing with actually kind of, uh, romantic or, uh, contemplative or, uh, uh, profound lyrics. Uh, so I actually do like Blueberry Boat, uh, because, uh, it's one of those albums that borders on pretension, but isn't pretentious. Now from there, they got pretentious yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. un- un- until the end of the road. And again, like, like you said, you know, Eleanor Freeburger is, is the singer and. Probably the the songwriter type, whereas Matt's the one that's more likely to, you know, let's let's push the envelope. And so it makes for a good dialectic um,
0: thing is that they, they reach that perfect balance with Gallows Birds Bark, which has that perfect balance of like really, really, really uh, a strong. Um, um, set and, 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 and structured songs, but with a really strong experimental bent at the same time, they had oh, yeah. that balance with the gallows bird's bark and they lost the balance. And with the last album they did, I'm going away. Uh, it went to the other extreme with Eleanor Friedberger dominating the record, but that sounds much better. All right, Chris. The next band, an album that you and I both loved at the same time when we were both living in New York City in 2002.
1: Yes, and this is the self-titled uh debut by The Coral. Uh and The Coral was an interesting band. The first time we heard this album we both laughed. Yeah. Uh, because it's uh basically they were like 20, 21-year-old kids, but their whole thing was uh, they clearly grew up on nuggets, <laughs> you know, and, the nuggets.
0: And, and and their parents record collection
1: and their parents record collection, you know, but, but, but definitely nuggets. And so it's like this garage rock, like mixed with, uh, you know, the sort of the hollies, uh, the zombies, uh, you know, that kind of like almost the swinging pop when with the B3 Hammond kind of thing. And so you listen to it and it really does have that, um, uh, that sort of wild, uh, wildly, uh, atmospheric, uh, boogie woogie, uh, like I said, organ and, uh, uh, guitar driven pop and with, with wonderful, uh, echoey vocals and, you know, uh, Spanish main is, is one of the highlights of that. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of songs. It was interesting. You know, I've, I've alluded to it a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, uh, in the course of uh, doing my uh, uh, research for the first dance of my upcoming wedding, uh, the chorals dreaming of you came up a couple of times, which is really interesting because it's a two, basically a two minute pop song. But it's like, you know, it, it kind of has that uh, almost like a uh, a white boy Bo Diddley kind of beat to it. And it's it's, yeah. it's like a shuffle. Uh, with, uh, sort of the, you know, pining for, you know, pining for romantic love. It's almost like, it's almost like a teenage love record. It's, uh, it's got a kind of a Neil Sadaka charm to it, but in the, uh, in the vein of that British garage, garage, rock, obviously, which, you know, the, the Nuggets box set, uh, box set, we have a buddy of ours, well, two buddies of ours, Bob and Ryan, uh, Bob first, and then Ryan that, where they basically almost overdosed on Nuggets, uh, 20, 20 years ago. And so that's how we became familiar with it. So, uh, reverend. And then of course they went downhill from there. Uh, they did, uh, a record, uh, their next record where they tried to do the, the really kind of dark psychedelic, uh, weird stuff, um, that wasn't as dreamy or wasn't as poppy or didn't have that thing. And it was just like, man, it was, it was a meh record and, and then, they just
0: didn't, they just didn't have the songs the songs yeah weren't there yeah
1: and and it, yeah and again and that's kind of what i'm getting at is that there was a lot of that psychedelic slop you know on the top the top end is preserved but the slop has gone into the dustbin and they brought back the slop and then of course it didn't work and then they fell off the face of the earth i don't even know what the hell they're doing now uh they have
0: they still have a very small cult following in the uk but no oh, really. yeah
1: I mean, I, and like, I've been at a couple of bars in Houston where uh, I've heard uh, a couple of their songs. I mean, I've heard uh, I Remember When, I've heard uh, Dreaming of You, uh, I've heard uh, Waiting for the Heartaches.
0: All uh, the first album.
1: <laughs> yeah. And well, yeah, some not all the first record, but I've heard like three or four songs that do get play at some of these, I wouldn't call them hipster bars. I guess you could call it that. It's like these... These uh, cool bars for millennials that, you know, have the, the giant uh, uh, Connect Four games in the back, really excited about this band. They were great. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, the th- and the thing also was like i i in 2002 oh2 02, three but 02 really i mean garage the the garage rock revival was big you know the white stripes and the strokes you know had hit big and a lot of others you know like-minded bands were mining the nuggets stuff different takes on nuggets basically you know bands like the mooney Suzuki and uh and there's another one uh the early yeah yeah, yeah yeahs their first ep was you know making making the rounds and I remember hearing the choral on K Rock late at night, they were playing Dreaming of You on K Rock. So they they came really close to breaking American rock radio and they just they just couldn't sustain quality for after that first album. So we
1: go to another extreme uh yes. uh with this album or with these with this artist. So
0: uh tell us Arturo N- number eight is a very well known band um in fact much of their legacy is uh rooted in their debut album and it's, it's 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 a sterling record and this band is devo now in 1978 this akron ohio band released their debut album q question are we not men and a answer we are devo that's the name of the album but it is one of the landmark records of the post-punk new wave era. Basically, they created a singular, original brand of angular funk and weirdo pop that really had no precedent. You cannot play spot the influence with Devo. The closest you can get, I guess, would be Captain Beefheart. That's the and, and that's still a, a reach. Hmm. their kitsch. Kitchy science fiction-based stage shows and surrealist humor stood out in a major way from the typical leather and spit punk rock bands of the time. Lyrically, their continual theme of the dumbing down of society and its tendency to cannibalize and destroy itself in various ways was prescient and is just as valid now as it was back then. Their lyrics had a bitterness and edge that many of the new wave and synth pop groups that followed in their wake simply lacked. And back to their music, I you mean, know, just highly original. Their stage shows were conceptual, um, and they were just just a daringly innovative, just bold band. In 1980, they had a huge hit single with "Whip It." Of course, if any of you are familiar, any of our age, any of you out there who are our age should know this song. It's one of the defining singles of the 1980s new wave era. But aside from that little nugget, none of their ensuing albums or any other singles made much of a dent, critically or commercially. And this lack of success continued until the last album in 1990 and then their eventual breakup. So it's it's just a shame, and overall disappoint, and and it's overall disappointing that a band that such showed such stunning originality, invention, and promise could be nothing more than a cult band with only one big 1980s hit. So that's my take on Devo. Yeah,
1: Devo is interesting. Like I said, uh, that album uh, it starts with uncontrollable urge and a cover of the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. It's that's one of the great one, two openings of any album uh, ever made, because it, it what it does is it introduces Devo's whole concept, which is that sort of uh, suburban irony mixed with this idea of what if you remove the humanness uh, and the, the emotion uh, and the uh, the pathos of a lot of this stuff and and, and strip it, strip it down. And in a, in a way it, it, it almost makes it kind of goofy, uh, or not goofy, but it's, it's satire and like what they do with the, with the satisfaction cover, which is just this very, uh, mechanical robotic sort of, uh, detached version of, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting because to me, the, the sex fiend, uh, uh, under, underpinnings of that song are much more uh, apparent in the Devo version than the, the Rolling Stones version. Cause the Rolling Stones version is so danceable and yeah. And, and so earnest in some ways you almost think it's a love song. No, <laughs> it's about Mick Jagger wanting to uh, uh, find a woman and uh, unload uh, like literally, you know uh, you know, cause he's, he's so tense,
0: but and in, in Devo's hands, basically it's someone who is unable of showing emotion that is basically a human robot and just wants satisfaction and doesn't know how to get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it doesn't understand the emotional, the human, emotional, sexual, the psychosexual part of it, you know, and it's, it's this, like I said, it's this detached ambition. Uh, so yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, I have to disagree a little bit. Freedom of choice has its fans in, in rock criticdom. Uh, I know it did well in Paz and Jop uh, circles that, that year it came out. I think it was 1980. Um does it have Whippet on it? Because Whippet came out in eighty. No, Whippet was uh, Whippet was the album after it. Um,
0: oh, okay. So that's that's seventy nine. You're thinking yeah. seventy.
1: Yeah. So Whippet Whippet was on a third record. But uh, Freedom of Choice. I mean the the title track is great, and it's one of those that has a few great covers of it out there. Um, and it's you know a little bit less uh, less conceptual, uh, but still has that you know that kind of you know their own. Uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's uh, 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 sort of singular beat, and that 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 sort of you know that sort of uh, like little quirky chug uh, that he had. So uh, I don't know. I mean, you can't call him too undone because again, Freedom of Choice wasn't you know as revered or as uh, popular. And then obviously they had their Whippet moment, which without MTV they wouldn't have had. Uh, cause, uh, great video. And, you know, they had the shtick with, the with the, the way out hats. If you're a, f- a fan of the Flintstones, you'll know
0: what I'm talking about. Maybe call them, call them one and a quarter and Dunner.
1: Yeah, basically.
0: Uh, yeah. One and an eight. All right, Chris, now we go on to number seven and in, in the, yeah. in the one and Dunners and we're going back to the UK for this one.
1: Yep. Yes, we are. Uh, this is a really interesting band and uh they broke out in uh 2000 the end of 2004 beginning of uh 2005 yeah and uh they were kind of a unique uh band in the sense that they uh they had kind of an original uh punk uh uh rumble kind of uh rhythm and uh writing style and they had a really uh engaging uh engaging singer uh who uh, uh remind me uh, uh, o okereki kelle yes yeah uh nigerian uh um origin but uh, british band right and so so they had this kind of um he almost kind of sounds very uh special uh, english beat in yeah. his vocals but then yeah. you then you mix it with this you know sort of political this politically charged uh punkish uh, band, you know, that right. they they hearken back to uh, the stuff that was coming out in the very early 80s from like The Clash and uh, uh, yeah. some of some of those bands. And, and don't uh, forget they,
0: the influence of Blur. Blur, a big influence on them, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Blur was a big influence on pretty much everybody in Britain that, you know, uh, from the late 90s all the way to like 2010 uh, or at least Damien Alburn. Uh So they had the album Silent a- a- Alarm. And the single Banquet, uh, which uh, is another one of those uh, songs that kind of like uh, Dreaming of You still exists in bars, in those, you know, quote unquote, cool yeah. bars here in America. Right. And uh, just really, just a really great single, uh, really um, powerful, emotional. Uh, O'Keki, he was interesting because he was a stage fright guy who had tonsillitis in the recording of this album. And so... And he was also unpredictable, so the idea was you never knew what tempo he wanted to play in. You never, uh, he, the band never knew what they were going to get, or you know what you know how he was going to sing it, how he was going to, if he was going to go staccato or full throat or anything like that. So, in some ways, you know, in the way it reads, he was a pain in the ass, but he was a he was a really great frontman. And so they they seemed like primed for a breakout as far as being one of these indie darlings that was going to last, right. but for whatever reason uh, that did not stick. And uh, in in a way, this was right before uh, Kanye. This was as as Kanye and Drake, um, well, Kanye first, then Drake, where they were kind of doing the um, the on ecstasy. Uh, auto-tune uh, kind of soul thing and that that kind of. And then those folks, along with like T.I. and the the uh, the pop part of the Dirty South and then the emergence of Katy Perry and Taylor Swift kind of swallowed up uh, the American conscience. Even like, you know, the the Rolling Stone guys that were fawning over Block Party, uh, they switched on a dime to fawning over Taylor Swift and Kanye. Uh, and to be fair, they kind of deserved it because, you know, Taylor Swift, uh, you know, Arturo and I have both learned to like her, but at the beginning of her album, it, she was singular, but maybe that wasn't a good thing because it was, it was countryish, but it was these rambling uh, uh, breakup and, uh, you know, relationship songs. The only good one was Love Story, but the rest of it was just kind of weird. But anyway, Block Party was a band that um, was the right band for the right time. The only problem was, is that time lasted about uh, 14 months.
0: <laughs> I can tell you exactly what happened with Block Party. Okay, their, their second album, the follow-up album, is called "A Weekend in the City." Came out in 07. It had a very expansive, almost cinematic, big arena rock thing, where every song started slowly and built up and built up to big proportions, and then like no, they were going for that big rock arena rock sound. The only problem is the 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 songs lacked the big time hooks and melodies you need for that kind of big sweeping rock sound. And they just didn't have it for that second album. They had the idea, they had the sound, they had the production, they had the arrangements of the instrumentation. They just, the songwriting, was it escaped them for, for, for that second album yeah and then, with, and then with the third album 2008 i mean although there was one good single from that from that album um in in, in 2007 mercury it, char- it charted in the yeah no that that came later on uh i still remember you know kind of charted a bit in the uk but really and the prayer went up to number four but it's the only country you know the UK is the only country where block party ever charted for real anyway and then they had their third album intimacy in 2008 which is awful. <laughs> it's just basically wannabe radiohead, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they, they they went all electronic, like a lot of bands. When, whenever bands say well, I want to do something experimental, it's just a, bit a euphemism for like going electronic. That's all it means. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Electronic equals experimental, you know. Yeah. You know?
1: I mean that, There's yeah, nothing that's
0: nothing else to do but go electronic.
1: Yeah, that's you know? the kind of thing. Either that or they go the like did the kind of stuff that the fiery furnaces did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. And then <laughs> and they get then, wacky. Yeah. And then they released their fourth album in 2012, which I really like. It's called Four. Um, it, it takes like the silent alarm blueprint and it augments it with like really heavy, hard rock, almost grunge. Um, big big riffola going on. I liked it, but it fell on a lot of deaf ears. People stopped giving a shit about them. And by the time of their fifth album, Hymns, in 2016, uh, Kele Okereki replaced the entire band. With other musicians, they released the album and it flopped. So yep. that was the end. And they yeah,
1: broke I mean, ultimately, the story of 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 them it was twofold. It was uh, one, uh, they uh, you know they kind of became obsolete uh, through no fault of their own, but also you know, uh, Okaleke was was such an eccentric that he uh, they abandoned the beat really of, of silent alarm. I mean, the thing about silent alarm is it has this really sharp, uh, kind of, you know, really, um, motivated driven, uh, almost like a jackhammer type of beat that goes on through the, through the record. And, uh, which makes it really compelling, really original. And then, like I said, that guy was, a, uh, an unconventionally great singer, but, but again, you know, like, uh, kind of like, you know, the, uh, the Ian Anderson's and, uh, Kim Simmons and, uh, you know, those bands of the early seventies, he, you know, he's one of these fire the band, replace them all with new guys. And then, you know, he's probably playing like County fairs in England, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, they became a County fair band, uh, because of that. And, uh, yeah. And it, it, so it's always going to be the one guy's band. And, uh, you know, at, at the high end, you got Mick Fleetwood, who, you know, so long as he's alive, there will always be a Fleetwood Mac.
0: Well, record. him and John McVie have always been together. McVie never. Yeah, I him.
1: know. But but Fleetwood calls the shots. You know, McVie, McVie is like Fleetwood's buddy, but, uh, but Mick Fleetwood calls the shots. And so, you know, that's the same thing with this band. And so uh, it's too bad because I was really excited about them. Uh, I, I really thought they were going to be like not just stars but superstars and they and never S-
0: got there. Silent alarm was such a is such a great record that makes you think these guys are going to be huge and yeah. they just did it, do it. Yeah.
1: No, the interesting thing one one more point uh, before we move on is that this album dropped around the same time as aha uh shake uh, heartbreak right. by uh, by Kings and Leon and so there was a sort of speculation about which one of those bands because they yeah. you know those those are both really strong records um, and compelling records. And so there was this kind of like, uh, you saw them and, and you, I think you kind of thought, thought, Oh, okay. So this is the new wave of really interesting quote unquote alternative rock bands. And of course, you know, Black Party falls off the, uh, the earth and, uh, Kings of Leon, uh, they finally figured out that all four of them were in the same band and then got boring, but they got huge. So
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: So what are you going to do? Okay. Right. So, so, uh, next, uh So uh, one of the – well, it's interesting. Is this band a one-album wonder or a one-hit wonder?
0: uh, Well, I mean, they're known by some – this is the number six one-and-dunner band. They're known by some as a one-hit wonder, but their first album is incredible. And I'm talking about Violent Femmes. Uh, Their album uh, is one of the defining – Alternative slash college rock albums of the 1980s. Uh, they came out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They were, and this minimalist trio, they were pioneers of what could be vaguely called punk folk. Okay. They basically took the standard folk setup acoustic guitar, stand up bass, and stripped down drums and injected the music with punk attitude and fast tempos with lyrics that traded in the classic rock and roll themes of anger, sexual frustration, alienation, and societal contempt. If 1976 was the ground zero for punk rock, 1983 was the ground zero for alternative and indie rock, especially in the U.S. Uh, the Fems were a big part of that, uh, as their self-titled debut was an instant classic, that garnered heavy airplay on college radio and other radio stations that specialized in underground rock. Um, the two big singles from this were Added Up and Blister in the Sun, which will forever be uh, sing along staples of that era, with the latter, especially the song you're refer- referring to, Chris, transcending the all time great status with its inclusion in many movie soundtracks throughout the years. And that's about it. (laughs) They They released several albums throughout the 1980s and 1990s, never really capitalizing or sufficiently expanding on their classic sound. A little more electric guitar here, a little more of a gospel feel there, but they never really did anything that captured the critical or commercial zeitgeist of that seminal first album. Um, they have a solid cult following that continues to this day. Their live shows are supposedly fun and rowdy affairs that inspire sing-alongs and the tradition that the best folk music inspires. But like Devo before them, that cult following is primarily based on the power of their debut album. Even if they'll, o- even if they'll always have that cult, it's a shame they couldn't do anything to really build on that debut album and to take it to another level. So... There's Violent Femmes for you.
1: Chris. Yeah, and I get the sense from the little bit of research I've done on them uh that uh, uh the two uh main guys uh Gano uh and uh uh what what's his face? Um
0: Gordon was, yeah. uh, Gordon Gano is, a, is the singer-songwriter, you know, Yeah, and,
1: and and Brian Ritchie uh right. were kind of the leaders of the band and uh here's the thing, of that era of those mid-80s bands uh, violent, the violent Femmes are kind of like one of those, uh, they're akin to a late fifties, uh, pop band or like, uh, the Percy Sledge's of the world yeah. where, uh, uh, Blister in the sun will live on in perpetuity in commercials, in video games, in movies, right. uh, on t-shirts. Cause you know, again, you know, I mean, there's violent Femmes fans just based on that. Uh, there'll be ironic, uh, concert appearances uh, you know, Gaino can, owe, again, county fair band and can do that. But, uh, you know, I get a sense because uh, there's a from a Milwaukee like hyper local site in 2007. This is around the time uh, Gaino sold uh, advertising rights to Blister and the Sun to Wendy's at one point. Now, if you remember this, that it showed up in like Wendy's commercials for two years. And so Richie uh, gives a statement on this to this on Milwaukee.com dot com. Uh, that reads as follows. It's in the Wikipedia entry, but I found it independently, too. Uh, for the fans who are rightfully complaining about the Wendy's Burger advertisement featuring Blister in the Sun, Gordon Gaino is the publisher of the song and Warner's is the record company. When they agree to use it, there's nothing the rest of the band can do about it because we don't own the song or the recording. That's showbiz. Therefore, when you see dubious or, in this case, disgusting uses of our music, you can thank the greed and sensitivity and poor taste of Gordon Gano. But It is his karma that he lost his songwriting ability many years ago, probably due to his own lack of self-respect as his willingness to prostitute our songs demonstrates. Neither Gordon, uh, slash, uh, parentheses, vegetarian, nor me, gourmet, eat garbage Uh like Wendy's burgers. I can't (laughs) endorse him because I disagree with corporate food on culinary, political, health, economic, and environmental grounds. However, I see my life's work trivialized at the hands of my business partner over and over again. Although I have raised my objections numerous times, as disgusted as you are, I am more so. Uh, and uh, good
0: God, he really ripped into him.
1: Yeah, and then of course this was around the same time that he filed a lawsuit against Gano seeking half ownership of the music and the royalties. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, which is which is interesting because. The next year, they released a cover of "Crazy" by Gnarles Barkley. Uh So somehow they managed to, you know, keep themselves in shtick and semi-relevant. He
0: <laughs> yeah. called them greedy and Like, good lord!
1: <laughs> yeah, and then they covered the biggest hit of the two thousand of the two thousands. Like, literally, that was the biggest hit of the two thousands.
0: On this episode, we castigated those bands that dared to tease us with the promise of rock and roll immortality by following up brilliant debut albums with lackluster career arcs. And we aren't done crapping on bands yet. This podcast got its name from the song Curmudgeon, the excellent B-side to Nirvana's excellent single Lithium. This year, we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Nirvana's Nevermind, an album whose music and legacy has only grown in stature in the ensuing years since it shook the foundations of rock music back in 1991. On the next episode, Chris and I will do a body count of all the god-awful bands whose careers were thankfully either killed off or made irrelevant by St. Kurt. It's also a chance for us to be trolls for all those people out there with crappy taste who are still fans of these loser bands. Email us at curmudgeonrock at or follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Okay, so now for our next entry in our one and dunners, we will traverse the one and dunner map from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, all the way to the East Coast in Connecticut for our next band. Chris
1: uh, yep he, he he mentions Connecticut which is uh, a familial ground for me my mother is from uh, Waterbury and specifically we're going to be in uh, at Wesleyan College uh, there in uh, in Connecticut uh, Wesleyan has a really interesting uh, and and a history you wouldn't think of, uh, Wesleyan is a smart boy school, uh, from, uh, you know, kind of, it's like a, uh, one of those, uh, or, uh, uh Vassar's uh, up there in the Northeast, but it has this oddly illustrious history of, uh, artists like Like well regarded and very talented uh, uh, musicians, lyricists, and uh, artists that come out of there, Uh, whether it's a strong music program or theater program. But a lot of these folks are like, you know, like you're like Conan O'Brien or Dennis, uh, uh, Le- uh, what's his name? Dennis Miller up at Brown that, you know, uh, major in like Greek classics and stuff like that. But, uh, just to name a few of these folks that come out of uh, Wesleyan, there's John, uh, Perry Barlow, who was a minor, uh, uh, lead dead lyricist, uh, lyricist for the Grateful Dead, uh, most famous for writing estimated profit. Uh, he worked on, uh, Bob Weir songs primarily because Robert Hunter couldn't stand him, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, uh, who's uh, the well known genius behind In the Heights and Hamilton on Broadway, basically remade uh, Broadway for the much better. Uh, you've got Santa Gold. Uh, you've got, uh, bizarrely, you've got one or two guys from The Highwaymen who harken back to Kingston Trio uh, uh, 1959 to 1961 kind of uh, folk you know, the, the the Tweet Sweater set. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Das Racist, which is a really interesting uh, undercooked uh, as far as publicity uh, hip-hop band. But uh, the most interesting of these bands lately has been MGMT. And we're going to talk about their album Oracular Spectacular, uh, which is, uh, you know, Arturo's heard me say it. I haven't really said it on this podcast yet, but I always refer to albums that you can call lightning in a bottle where an artist just captures something a moment in time, or they're just absolutely inspired and they, they make this damn near perfect record. Um, And then they just kind of never get back there. And, you know, the lightning, they open the bottle, the lightning escapes, and uh, it might as well just be piss that goes back in the bottle. And MGMT was definitely that case. So they came up with this thing. Uh, It was uh, two uh, friends uh, at, um, uh, uh, at him, uh, at Wesleyan, Andrew uh, Van Weingarten and Ben Goldwasser. And, uh, their thing was, they had, um, this thing for, uh, this keyboard pop. Uh, it was a keyboard driven pop. It's almost Moog like, I'm not exactly sure if it's actually a Moog, but it's, it's Moog like, and it has this, um, uh it's a combination of this cheap uh, of this Casio sounding uh throwback uh keyboards almost to the to the krautrock uh uh thing with this very crunchy guitar thing and then these uh these echoey vocals where they literally sound like a couple of 15-year-old kids in a bedroom uh you can you can tell they're young guys but it's brilliant uh like the uh, one of the great uh, opening tracks of the 2000s. And I always say that, you know, the mark of an al- of a uh, an album that will always survive is if it has a, a great to classic first song, then you can forgive uh, shit uh, uh, that appears in the rest of the record. And that's the case with MGMT. Time to Pretend, uh, I think, is one of the top five songs of the 2000s. Uh, it's, it's up there with Seven Nation Army, and Since You've Been Gone, and uh, uh, Jesus, etc., and uh, I Might by Wilco, and uh, uh, Built the Spills Going Against Your Mind, and uh, The Strokes, You Only Live Once. And so that's my short list. But uh, just spectacular uh, combination pop uh, and uh, sort of uh, an, almost a, a EDM. Uh, new wave rock, uh, Splice. Uh, They also kind of experiment with, uh, uh, you you know, these sort of uh, almost California uh, harmonies and, and I guess you could call it um, uh, happy music is too. I mean, the most famous song is Kids. Uh, You know, that, that Kids is kind of their version of uh, Blister in the Sun where it'll show up and, and actually, actually electric feel uh, is the one I was thinking of, which is kind of a dancey, uh, dance-y song, almost like something that you would find. And if you think of like Beck's Midnight Vultures, it's almost a cousin of something you would find on that. That shows up in a lot of licensing uh, uh, contexts as well. Uh, produced by Dave Ridman, uh which makes sense because uh, he is like the king of uh, the echo and the rumble. Uh, this decade, his his two most uh, famous recordings besides this one, this is probably his most famous recording. But other than that, are The Soft Bulletin by The Flaming Lips and uh, The Woods by Slater Kenny. Uh, and so uh, it's just it's just a terrific record. Uh, it actually made Rolling Stones uh, 500 greatest albums of all time uh, back in 2012. Anyway, at 494, I think it's moved up uh, since then. And it excuse deserves me, excuse to me.
0: No, it has not. It dropped
1: out. It did drop out, which uh, drop. which uh I vehemently disagree with because I think it's 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 aging very, very well. Uh, you know, and again, you know, it's uh time to pretend, especially, you know, the lyrics that you know kids is a celebration of innocence and time to pretend is this very uh tongue-in-cheek, ironic rejection of uh, the, uh, the rich kid, trust fund, baby cocaine scene of, uh, of, uh, Williamsburg, uh, basically. Uh, so really interesting stuff. But then what happened to them is that they, they got a little, uh, self-congratulatory and self-indulgent and it's, it's like what happens to filmmakers and, you know, think about it like, uh, like minor Coen brothers films where Coen brothers make some money, make a classic film. And so now they get a, uh, you know, they get a license to go, uh, uh, wank around. And so, you know, exactly. and, and yeah, exactly. So for every uh, Inside Lewin Davis, uh, you know, you get, uh, uh, you know, you get uh, Hail Caesar and, you know, you get these kind of uh, wanky uh, albums. And that's what they've been doing ever since. It's this, uh, again, it's electric, electronic slop that uh, has no form and has no point. And it's just them uh, messing around with their instruments. A little bit more guitar based uh, too, but which is too bad because that. Uh, that Mogey thing. And I don't know if it's Moge, but it's Mogey. Uh, it, I just invented a word, boys and girls. Mogey uh, is <laughs> just fascinating. So, uh, a regular spectacular, uh, lightning in a bottle, uh, one of the great records of, uh, of the 2000s. And strange but true. Uh, back in like, I think it was 2009 or 2010, Fish was getting ready for their annual Halloween show. And the the two finalists for what they were going to play were Dark Side of the Moon and "Oracular Spectacular. Wow. Yeah, I almost wish they had gone with "Oracular okay. Spectacular because uh, Trey Anastasio getting guitar solos out of some of this stuff would have been fascinating. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, 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 any, so anyway, yeah, Lightning in a Bottle, uh, I think that this album and the Devo album are the two most uh, indicative of, of, of that uh, phenomenon in rock. On this list What say you Arturo?
0: Yeah I say um, Well when When this album First When it came out And started It came out in late 2007 But it really started Picking up steam In 2008 And When it came out And when they were Starting to get big um, the, the comparison Was the Flaming Lips And I think part of it Is because of the producer David Friedman Who produced The Flaming Lips And this album got, um, As a band MGMT's music Got compared to them I don't see it at all. I mean, I, I honestly... No, me neither. MGMT were a straight-up pop group. Uh, and Oracular and Spectacular has great pop songs. And and I think this is a common theme of this list of one and dunners is bands that had great songs on their first album, and they lost the songwriting ability. Uh, it, it happened with the Fiery Furnaces. It happened with the Choral. It happened with Block Party. You know, and it's happening in here with MGMT. Their first album is everything that you said it was. Then their second album, Congratulations, Congratulations, yeah, which was an eagerly anticipated album, debuted at number two on the Billboard charts, and it dropped like a lead, like a dead weight, because it just was this obnoxiously progressive and overly complex sound with like no real like songs for the listener to you know. Put their, you know, put bite their teeth into. Yeah, where's the hits? Yeah, where the hits? I mean, yeah, it's, it's a good sounding record, but the music is excessively complex. And then the third album, 2013, MGMT self titled album, is awful. It is a dreadful piece of tuneless, formless, awful psychedelic slop. Where really the only good song on the album is a cover. You know when the cover okay. I'm sorry. I I know it sucks to say this, but when the cover okay is like the only good song on the album that gets any kind of attention, you know it's a really like a really really crappy record.
1: Arturo, uh, you are
0: in charge of number
1: four. What do you got?
0: We're back to the UK, and this time we're going to Scotland, and we are going to talk about. The incredible debut album of Franz Ferdinand. Now, coming out of Glasgow, Scotland, this band skyrocketed out of the UK indie scene with their self-titled debut album in 2004. It was a commercial and critical blockbuster, both, that positioned them to be the next great British indie rock band and the antidote to the austere arena rock of bands like Coldplay. Um, Merging addictively catchy Duran -Duran Duran-esque 1980s pop with the fierce angular funk of late 1970s post-punk art rock, such as Gang of Four, their first album is a note-for-note perfect kind of It's a perfect kind of record that just kickstarted a mini wave of like minded bands employing angular skewered rock such as Block Party, mentioned earlier in this list, Art Brute and early Arctic Monkeys. Uh, Take Me Out was an international hit both in Europe and in, in the U.S. and belongs on any list of the best pop singles of the noughties. Um, it, it really is a perfect pop record. I mean, the way you feel about MGMT, Chris, is the way I feel about this Franz Ferdinand record. I think it's just, it's just one, of, I think it's one of the best albums ever made. So what happened? Well, their follow-up album from 2005, uh, You Can Have It So Much Better, was probably released a little too soon since the first album was still having its singles in radio rotation. With a very, while it is a very solid album, it was more or less more of the same. And later albums would see them go further into dancey disco pop with a noticeable decline in songwriting and inspiration and an increase in glossy, shiny, vapid production or overproduction, if you will. Um, Inferior copycat bands like the Killers would go on to fill the arena-sized hole at Franz's breakthrough and eventual commercial decline left behind. They still have a considerable cult following and a slightly larger following in their native Scotland, but there's no doubt they never lived up to the immense impact and promise of their amazing first album. Yeah,
1: yeah, pretty much agreed uh, on that. And uh, for what... uh, for what it's worth, let's give an honorable mention to The Killer's Hot Fuss. I know you disagree, but that that to me is another lightning in a bottle album. And then they went de- uh, way downhill from there. But uh, All These Things I've Done is uh, right up there with Take Me Out as one of the great singles of the uh, the 2000s. But this album, like you said, is just remarkable in its consistency and its energy and its originality. Um, even though, you know, like I said, they have some forefathers, Um some obvious forefathers from the uh, the post punk scene of uh, of England in the uh, late seventies and early eighties, uh, but take me out. I'll be you one better. I think it's one of the great rock songs of all time.
0: Oh um, yeah, not, not,
1: not, not just the two thousands. Because what it does is it is it starts out and and it does this really neat trick. And I almost wonder if they did it on purpose. But it starts off as almost like one of those boring Interpol. Kind yeah. of, uh, kind of rumbles and uh, like they're goofing know. on them. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they're goofing on Interpol. I always wondered about that, and so it's kind of this, uh, you know, kind of dreamy, uh, like faux dreamy uh, love song kind of thing. And then it, it gets into this where it kind of introduces the riff, and it gets this kind of slow uh, thing. And with that sort of, with that, you know, the the great thing about that song is it's not the playing; it's the air between the beats, it's this, it, it's the stuff that's not there. Yeah. It, you know, that makes it such a great song and that, you know, that dance ability, it's just this, uh, it's just this remarkable, like great lead part, great beat, uh, great bridge. And it's just one of the most, uh, enjoyable, remarkable, uh, just energy blowing out of the speakers, uh, songs, uh, that you can get. And then uh, they also were great at tongue in cheek on this record too, you know, like Michael and uh, uh, you know some of the some of the other stuff. It wasn't it was not so much satire, so much as them just having fun. Yeah. Uh, they were a fun band. Now I will say this: yeah, the quality of their albums dropped off, and their relevance surprisingly dropped off pretty quickly.
0: Yep, but, like party, <laughs> huh? Like block party,
1: yeah, and and I think they got kind of swept up in the same thing that you know in 04, 05, because remember the the biggest album of those years was American Idiot uh, by Green Day, and so you know they were in the right era at that time, and then they weren't <laughs> within two yeah. years. Uh, but it is worth mentioning that they had two great singles after that, one of which comes close to take me out, which is Do You Want to? Love uh, that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great single and it has that same kind of energy, that same kind of weird uh, hipster dance ability to it. And then I also like the single from the thir- 2013 record, Right Thoughts, Right Words, Right Action. Uh, it has this almost kind of military-ish uh, 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 kind of stomping uh, beat and, and, and cadence. So, uh, you know, like I said, so they, they still were able to get a couple of great singles. Uh, they didn't, yeah, you know, if, if they had wanted to, you know, they had the ability. They could have been like a Jethro Tull or a Stone Temple Pilots and then just, you know, made like two or three sterling uh, uh, singles, a record, and then just put a bunch of garbage in there. But nobody cares because everybody remembers the singles. Right. Uh, but they could have been that, but they didn't even become that, which is really disappointing.
0: Well, this one, uh, Chris, this is uh, an album that you and I, well... We are transversing or traversing I should say the Atlantic again we're going zigzagging back and forth across from the Atlantic coasts back to the u s East Coast and this is a band that is a uh, near and dear to our old school curmudgeon heart. Chris, who are they? Okay, so uh this is Boston
1: uh-huh. yes, we actually are covering Boston on this on this podcast. And you
0: know,
1: yes, I, I've always I've been a fan of Boston for a long time. I, I worked with you know Brian Hyatt, who's now the uh, the senior writer at Rolling Stone. Back when we worked together at a place called Sonic Net, we used to bust each other's chops about how much I like Boston, how much he hated Boston. Uh-huh. uh Yeah, and you know, and again, he's from uh, South Jersey, where you know they hate anything that's not you know Springsteen, Costello, or Dylan uh, down there. But hello, Brian, if you're listening. Uh, anyway, uh, so this album. You know, you've got the two guys, uh, Brad Delp, uh, you know, R.I.P. Brad Delp and uh, Tom Schultz, uh, who uh, these guys, you know, they they're in that uh, sort of wheelhouse in the mid 70s with like Blue Oyster Cult. And these these really great musicians and producers that manage to, you know, be pop guys that, you know, that live in, in classic rock in perpetuity which is, you know, a testament to the greatness of this record that, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and just, uh, you know, read the track listing from this album. And uh, you probably will know every single one of these songs. Uh, More Than a Feeling, Peace of Mind, foreplay Slash Long Time, which is part my personal favorite Boston, Rock and Roll Band, uh, which maybe there, that might be the, well. Besides, more than a feeling, that might be the other one. Smoking, which has one of the the great uh, like I don't know if, if it's an electric piano or whatever, but just great, ridiculously uh, uh, indulgent uh, solo part of that. Hitch a ride, something about you, which is kind of melty, and then let me take you home tonight, which I think is probably their best power ballad um, or ballad ballad. It's uh, because it's I don't know how much power there is. But all eight of those songs on most classic rock stations or most of the old school classic rock stations that are run by guys like our parents' age or at least my mom's age, all eight of those in any classic rock market in the country, you will hear all eight of those songs at least four or five times every week. Uh, So it's the one classic album that no one in this country actually needs to buy. However... (laughs) It sold 17 million copies, and I believe is still in the top 10 of the great, of the most uh, sold and bought albums of all time. I wouldn't be surprised if Schultz and Delp's estate still make seven figures a year just off this record alone. Shit. Yeah, and again, and to, well, okay, and to talk about it musically, uh, Schultz and Delp were uh, the masters of the guitar overdub. Uh, and they probably did it as well as anybody that ever lived. And uh, even, you know, Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins has said yes. that, one, that one of his biggest influences is Tom Schultz. And so his approach to, you know, layering his guitars is a direct descendant of Boston. And so wonderful sound. Uh, Delp was an amazing singer. Schultz is one of the you know, more underappreciated uh, gurus of the studio. Uh, you know, he's he's probably up there with like a Buckingham or, or uh, an Elvis Costello as a producer slash uh guitarist slash you know artist out front artist. So, uh, but then after that, um, they well, let's just put it this way when you when you go from an album that where all eight singles or, or all eight songs are on the uh the uh the radio for all of time. (laughs) And then you go uh, to uh, the second record, which is don't look back, which I would say is still a pretty good record. But, you know, now you're down to uh, just a few, you know, obviously don't look back um, and, you know, feeling satisfied uh, are on there, but now you're like, not necessarily as much on the radio And then, yeah, I mean, their biggest hit came in the mid-80s with Amanda, which is just insipid. Uh, So it's just one... It's diminishing returns that diminished real quick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then they came out with an album It was like 93 or 94, which is basically just, uh, hey, let's try doing that debut record again with not as good songs. So it it sounds exactly like it, but the songs just aren't there. So... um, you know, of these bands, it's one of these things that maybe it's a tragic waste that they never had uh, an album as great as this, but what, what do they care? Uh They're still making seven figures off at a year and they're still, I mean, if they want to go do county fairs, I mean, you know, Tom, Tom Schultz can go get four scrubs and still make money. So, uh, somehow I don't think that they're too crestfallen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I mean, also it needs to be known that Boston, after that first album, a lot of, um, they had a lot of legal issues with their record company, um, a lot of wranglings over royalties and and who owns what and 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 uh, they, they had a lot of internal strife within the band as well because Tom Schultz was a control freak and and really tended to like dominate the band with an iron fist and you know rubbed off a lot of bad me- band members the wrong way. There was a bit of a revolving door here and there of uh, of band members. So yeah, there was a, a Boston's kind of a tragic story because uh, in the end, Brad Delp in what was it 2003, I believe, committed yeah. suicide. Yeah, he hung himself. Yeah, yeah, and that that's like, geez, and people have wondered why he killed himself. You know, you never know why. I mean, all kinds of stuff goes through people's head when they decide to take that route in life. But you know, Delp wasn't making as much money as Schultz was, and I guess you know, he got tired of playing the county fairs and, you know, it's a half empty crowds I mean, or half empty venues. It could be that. But anyway, um, there, was a, there was a lot of strife in the story of Boston, uh, the band of Boston, of course. And a lot of it had to do with their their relationship with their record label CBS, which was toxic. It got toxic after a while. At some point, CBS sued the other record label that signed Boston. No. And yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, you should read, if anybody has a chance, read into the story of Boston. It's a, it's, it's a clusterfuck. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, I mean, Delp and, you know, just to, just to, qualify something. You never know what's going on with these folks that commit suicide. I mean, you know, depression is one of the great mysteries uh, of of the world. And I have to correct myself, actually. Uh, He, uh, he did the, uh, the carbon monoxide turning the car on in the garage thing, which is pretty, pretty rough. But, um, you know, and that, um, you know, Boston's webmaster actually just said, you know, we lost, we just lost the nicest guy in rock and roll. So now, now we move on to the two uh, most storied slash legendary uh, bands and uh, debut albums on this, on this record, for better or worse. So, Arturo, you start.
0: Oh, I've been waiting to rip into this band for 20 years. Okay. <laughs> the general critical narrative about The Strokes is that their debut album is one of the greatest rock albums of all time. And since then, they have not come close to matching it with one subpar album after another. I agree with the latter, and I disagree with the former. Now, I would like to put an asterisk to this entry into our curmudgeonly list of one and dunners by saying their 2001 debut, Is This It?, while generally considered to be an era-defining classic, is, in my opinion one of the single most overrated albums of all time. For me, it's up there with other annoyingly ass-kissed albums, such as The Flaming Shits, The Shit Bulletin, My Boring Valentine's, Tuneless, and Love's Forever Changes. While I admit there are a couple of great songs on it, For the most part, it's the same monotonous riff on top of the same monotonous drum rhythm over and over again. What compounds it all is how derivative it is of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. If you've never heard of the latter two, you would think the Strokes are wonderful. But I've heard Lou and I've heard Iggy, and the Strokes don't do anything new to to their regurgitation of New York CBGB's rock. Now, while they got praise for their lyrics and their depiction of partying and drinking and romance in 24-hour Manhattan, what I got out of them was that these kids could afford to party, drink, and romance on a 24-hour basis because they were all children of upper-class New York City socialite families. Now, I'm I'm in a distinct minority here, but I actually think their second album, 2003's Room on Fire, is a much better album. The music is more eclectic and same-sounding, incorporating styles such as R&B, soul, and reggae. And the sound quality is better due to better production, and the songwriting is just, to me, punchier and tighter. Afterward, everything pretty much falls apart for the Strokes. Such was the strength of the cachet that they built from their first album, that the relative commercial and critical failure of the second album didn't dampen expectations for their third album, 2005's First Impressions of Earth. Whether it was the drug addictions that addled several of the band members at the time or the fact that each of the band members developed their own married lives that kept them away from each other for long stretches of time, they just didn't care anymore. And the third album was an artistic Disaster. Lots of great individual parts, great opening song, you know, good riffs here, good melodies there, good rhythms here were put together. And in a cut and paste style that cut and paste style that didn't really coalesce into any good songs, um, unless you're really talking about uh, that excellent first track that Chris mentioned earlier. Uh, The first track on this song, I believe it is called, ah, yes, You You Only Live Once. That's a great track after that the album just falls falls off a cliff um yeah after this, this after this album uh after that album i should say the strokes have been phoning it in ever since each ensuing album from 2011 onward is just a capitulation to lackluster streamlined conventional indie pop they still have their following slightly bigger than most of the other bands on this list but Again, that's largely due to the supposed greatness of their first album and the false hope that they'll recapture that magic again. Guess what? They won't. Done.
1: No, that no, they certainly won't. But here is where Arturo and I diverge the most on this list. Uh, I think they have two classic records. First Impressions of Earth, which is the one that he just said he hates, uh, and uh, is is this it? Uh, so uh, to take the, the first one, since we're talking about that first, yes, it is a combination of like Lou Reed and and the Stooges, and it's it's a throwback to the sort of scuzzy uh, early seventies. But it's a really interesting uh, record. I think that there's there's some baroque stuff going on there, not broke, baroque, Bar- baroque uh, that. Uh, Albert Hammond Jr. and Nick Valenti were both really very good guitarists, and Blancas could really write songs. Um, he, uh, like I said, the there's the lyrics, there's the parting, but there's also sort of a um, a little bit of a soul. It's not just snottiness. There's a little bit of a soul there, and a little bit of a conscious, like you know, barely legal and uh, hard to explain. like Room on Fire, I think, is Albert Hammond's. Finest moment, uh, and Nick think There's just some fabulous lead playing on that record, but the melodies aren't there. Uh, I don't
0: agree. I disagree. Of course, there, they're there,
1: there. no. There's a there's a couple of songs. There's a couple of waltz like songs in the middle uh, that have them, uh, but I don't. And then you know they've got the Cars rip off. What is it, uh, fourteen fifty one or twelve
0: fifty one? In my opinion, is their best single. It's a perfect pop. It's a great pop song. No,
1: it's but it, you can't. You know the the. The keyboard loop is so obnoxiously up in front of the mix, you can't even hear the vocals, uh, which I guess is on purpose. And yeah. it's, almost, it's almost a parody of the cars. But And then they get into First Impressions of Earth, which is a really adventurous record with, you know, it, it is, I won't say it, it's not quite, I mean, I called it a classic for the era. It drops off at the end and it gets a little wonky. But yeah, you've got you only live once, which, again, I think is one of the, the great singles of, of the 2000 of, you know, the last 20 years. Uh, but there's some other great stuff like the first seven or eight songs. I think it's perfect. Um, and it's just got this aesthetic. It's their most original record. I think that that was the record where they started to find their voice. And then, like Arturo said, then they got sober and got married and then they quickly lost their voice and they tried to get it back like three or four times. They released an album last year that was just awful. Um, you know, just unbelievably awful, uh, yeah. and just, dis- and disappointingly awful on that note, let us get to number one, which, oh I- boy. this'll be, this'll be good. Um, so, uh, Art, uh, take a guess. I- I'll give you three guesses as to what this album is. Uh, let's see. Motley Crue. No, but 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 actually, not a bad not not a bad uh, uh, one for this canon. Too fast for love's a good record. So give it give it a uh, second one.
0: A second, let's see. Um, let me think. Let me think. Okay, rat.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we're a little off base there. Uh, even though like Milton Burrow was in their video, which is wonderful. But anyway, uh, and so give me another guess. I got one more. Okay, uh, poison. Which actually open up and say ah. Uh, is a guilty pleasure kind of record. So, but anyway, so uh, that last one was pretty close to what happened uh, with this record. This is Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction, which yeah. I think is the greatest one and done record in history and certainly right up there in like the top three or four, top five of uh, uh, all time greatest debut records i mean it's not quite uh are you experienced it's not quite please please me but boy damn is it good and it took me a long time to realize that because you know i was kind of a pussy boy as a as a kid you know i was very sensitive and all that and uh first time i heard uh appetite for structure i was at a friend's house it scared it scared me you know and you know it had the um the inside uh art of the jacket, which is, you know, the, the, the rape and the, the murder and the riots and, and all that. But, and, you know, and obviously I guess I was a fan of Sweet Child of Mine because it became such a good pop hit. It was very, you know, Elton Johnny or, you know, kind of the pop of the day, but it really took me until I lived in Phoenix in 2002 through 2004. And I was at a bar one time with a friend of mine out there. And they were playing the album in its entirety. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went on. Oh, my goodness. Is that is this an accomplishment? And so I started studying the record and studying the history and really getting into, you know, the Axl Rose slash Izzy Stradlin, Stephen Adler and Duff McKagan. You know, that they, they had a, an interesting dynamic. You know, the only one that wasn't a junkie in the album or on in the band was Axel, And he was the biggest asshole. Uh, go figure. Um, but this record, they were an LA metal band at a time where LA metal bands were dominating MTV, were dominating uh pop radio. Actually, you know, you had well, you know, Bon Jovi was like honorary, uh, they were over in Jersey, but you know, you had Warrant, you had Poison, uh, you know, you had your uh, uh, you, you know, uh, enough. To, uh, but some of the, you know, and some of the names are escaping me, like Kix, I think, was one of those bands. Lita Ford was out there. You know, Ozzy was based in L.A. Uh, and so, yeah, you you had uh, L.A. Guns uh, was another one. Uh, and so you had all these sort of milk toast bands. Motley Crue became one, too. They started off as prog rock legends and then devolved into just sort of corny songs about, you know, basically about fucking and fucking, uh, which is a little which is a little different than ACDC. But then you get Guns N' Roses, which, you know, they come out there. You've got serious musicians. Uh, you've got it's a it's a strange mix because you've got the the guy from in, the poor kid from Indiana that took a bus ride out there and f- figured his way out into the scene. And then you've got the uh, the half black kid whose mom dated uh, Burt Reynolds in the 70s and, and David Bowie. And David Bowie. Yeah. So, you know, Saul Hudson, otherwise known as Slash. And then, so what I admire about Guns N' Roses is that they're the only one of those scuzzy, uh, decadent, uh, self-destructive L.A. bands that was honest about it. And so that that I think is their biggest uh, differentiator. The other thing is, is they came up with this unbelievably original mix of of a bunch of different rock styles. They're, they're just a quintessentially creative, uh, really focused, uh, really smart rock and roll bands. And it's, it's an eccentric record to me because you've got Axel with his vocals that really kind of is in the LA wheelhouse. Uh, but, but with more of an edge and a scream, but then you've got a virtuoso lead guitar player that, is living metal. I mean, he's, he's the, he's the, him and Duff McKagan are the, you know, drink whiskey from the bottle. And yeah, they they might as well be swallowing the heroin in the bottle. Uh, that's how much junky they were. Uh, but you get just all this talent and they could all write, uh, the best song on Appetite for Destruction to me, or my favorite song is It's So Easy. And this is co-written by Duff McKagan and a friend of his. Uh, with contribution from Slash as far as the arrangement. But it's just this scuzzy, uh, just lifestyle thing of uh, almost like sexual predator behavior and, you know, attitude. And, you know, it's got the, uh, the, the famous re- uh, refrain of you think you're so cool. Well, you can just fuck off, uh, which, you know, with, at the time was like just a wonderful uh, sort of contrary statement. And, you know, obviously it begins with Welcome to the Jungle and, you know, everybody knows that those notes and that that intro, it's one of the great intros in, of any record ever, uh, because it really does introduce you to the musicianship of this band and the edge of this band. And then you get into the lyrics, which, you know, again, are that sort of uh, uh, introduction of it's almost like a, an origin story song uh, for them. But there's just a lot of different styles you know you get the really pretty uh pop song in uh, sweet child of mine you get the stadium rocker like the stadium anthem sing along and bop along with paradise city which has one of the great solos in the history of metal uh just ridiculous how well uh, uh, slash could actually play for as much of an icon as he is he's actually pretty brilliant uh, as as a musician songwriter and guitarist uh, and then, you know, you've got Steven Adler, who, you know, because, you know, Adler's most famous for being the guy who was so hooked on cocaine, he had a stroke, uh, you know, uh, and so he, he, he literally fucked himself up physically uh, and couldn't play the drums anymore. Uh, but, you know, there's so there's this strong rhythm backbeat. There's a chugga There's some Rolling Stones in there. There's some punk in there. There's a lot of L.A. metal. And then you just get this sort of original uh uh mystery and almost like a mysticism in some of Slash's playing and in some of the uh, vocal tricks uh in there and then you also have to give it up for any album where there's a feud over a girl between Axel and his drummer and so in the uh, in the the solo and bridge part uh, there's actual footage audio footage of Axel, sleeping with the girl that they were competing in in the sound booth with actual recorded orgasmic moans as a way to screw with Steven Adler uh so uh that's one of the more famous uh legends of uh uh 80s LA metal so uh a perfect record uh so to kind of fit our format uh so then like axel got a big head after this, and he wanted to do these Use Your Illusion records in 91, which is this double record, and it's supposed to be their magnum opus. And, you know, uh, no, it you know, it's, it's more like a 45 magnum to the head um, in terms of their career. It just, the most famous stuff is the most indulgent, even though there's a couple of, there's a few really great songs on it, but it just was, you know, M- MTV ate it up right before Nirvana came along. We'll be talking about that Dynamic soon, but it's just worth mentioning that uh, Guns and Roses is kind of the bridge from Warrant and Poison to Nirvana that they set them up with the scuzziness and the honesty. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's one of these things where Axel was such a became such a uh, pretentious, unsufferable asshole that people forget that this is one of the most honest, hard rock, rock records I think uh, ever made and deserves its status. And then, obviously. You know, uh, he was so insufferable. Everybody in the band quit, and like ten years later, he's working with uh, Tommy Stinson and Robin Fank, of all people. So, go figure. Uh, so, anyway, Arturo, what's your take on Appetite?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, on Guns N Roses and Roses and their status as a one and doneer. I mean, the Use Your Illusion albums. If you take, I mean, okay, let me start off by saying I used to hate Guns and Roses when I was you know when I was younger. Because I was a big Nirvana fan Of course Kurt Cobain hated Guns N' Roses So therefore I must must hate Guns N' Roses But over time I, I, I started to realize Yeah, Appetite's a great album It's one of the great rock and roll records Of all time, hands down And um, they had a little thing Called an EP called Lies That exposed Axl Rose's Small-mindedness <laughs> in, some, in some ways um that song one in a million which technically as he's defended it it's 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 an in character song he's he's writing the lyrics in character but just the 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 homophobic and the racist and the and uh, lyric and the content of that is delivered with such venom that it's hard not to believe that axel really meant it like i, I don't give axel credit for being randy newman okay <laughs> he's not that kind of songwriter okay i'm sorry you know he's not that smart let's put it that way and it, a, a bit of his own maybe at the time maybe not now maybe he's changed in his older age but at the time his homophobia and racism leaked a bit it did an appetite it did very much so in the GNR Lies. And by the, and, and by the time... The GNR Lies EP. And by the time of Use Your Illusion... It just, just, like you said, he became a big-headed, insufferable dick. And his ego just took over the band. And Use, use Your Illusion... The, the, both Use Your Illusion albums have a lot of haters out there. Um, it sold a shitload of copies back then. They were really popular. But like as the years have gone on, they haven't been that popular. I happen to think if you get the best songs, get the best uh, four or five songs on Use Your Illusion 1, get the best four or five songs on Use Your Illusion 2, put them together, you get a really good Use Your Illusion record. But no, they didn't do that. And what happened is what, you know, they went on this elaborate stadium tour with backing singers and stage props and extra musicians and it cost more money to put on the show than they actually made from ticket sales, which were substantial, which tells you how much money they poured into that initial stadium show. For the second and third legs of the Use Your Illusion tour, they scaled it back and had to go, you know, really minimal just with the original band, just so they can make a profit from the tour. Um they did, uh, uh, what's it called? The Spaghetti Incident, an album of covers. I mean, does anyone really like that album? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. No. And then it, it took, what, 15 years and they put out, well, not they, Axel Rose and the band Pretending to Be Guns N' Roses put out, you know, Chinese Democracy, which is a, a god-awful piece of shit. Yeah. 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 And that's it. Yeah. That's why they're the one and done it. They're one of the best debut al- one of the best albums ever as their debut album. They were the biggest band in the world, and they really, really never lived up to the promise. <laughs>
1: time to explore the vault as we do in every episode uh, we start our episodes with new albums and then now we kind of show off and dig into our crates and introduce you to an old album that either is uh, close to our hearts well in my case that's going to be the case this week or is an interesting nugget that you should check out for further study and for further rock nerddom Uh, So, Arturo, what are you uh, taking out of the vault this week?
0: Well, we can file this one under another band I would not have discovered if it were not for Kurt Cobain. (laughs) This band is Flipper. And they were an underground punk, kind of punk indie alternative band that Kurt Cobain had uh, this album that we're going to talk about. It was on, it was on his list of 50, his 50 favorite albums of all time. He, when he wrote in his, uh, his diary journals. And the name of the, the, name of the album is "Album/generic Flipper," which is kind of a joke, right? Released in 1982, this album marks essentially the invention of sludge punk, which is basically raw, nasty punk rock slowed down to a Black Sabbath-esque trawl and heavily distorted bass way, way up in the mix. Black Flag's 1984 album My War is sometimes credited for creating the sound and influencing grunge, but in fact, Flipper got there first and were a foundational influence on iconic grunge bands such as the Melvins, Mudhoney, and, and of course Nirvana. Originating in the San Francisco punk scene that also spawned bands such as Crime and the Dead Kennedys, they released their first single and B-side, Canal, followed by Ha 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 in 1980. But it wasn't until they released album Generic Flipper that the truest distillation of their punishing sound would be evident. In addition to the addictively repetitive, churning, monolithic Sludge riffs uh, Flipper. It was Flipper's lyrics That are and were Endearingly crass And apathetic uh, The great music journalist Robert Criscow described Flipper's Lyrical onslaughts as Quote unquote Existential resignation at its Most enthusiastic <laughs> Flipper basically Took sadness, anger Depression, despair and overall misanthropy, and tried to find the humor and poetry in it all. No song better describes this band's ethos than the opening track, ever. Um, I'm going to recite the lyrics uh, to this track. Um, It's really not that long uh, because it's a kind of a short song. But I'm going to recite the lyrics because this encapsulates Flipper's worldview and just lyrical outlook i mean and this is some are you ready chris all right i am we, i am all right here we go this goes here we go flippers ever an all-time classic ever live in a life that's real full of zest but no appeal ever had to really cry cry so much you want to die ever feel like you've been had had so much that you turn mad Ever been so depressed that those you turn to you bring distress? Ever sit in tormenting silence that turns so loud you start to scream? Ever take control of a dream and play all the parts and set all the scenes? Ever do nothing and gain nothing from it? Ever feel stupid and then know you really are? Ever think you're smart and find out that you aren't? Ever play the fool and find out that you're worse? Ever look at a flower and hated it? That's my favorite line. (laughs) Ever see a couple kissing and get sickened by it? Ever wish the human race didn't exist, then realize you're a human too? Well, have you? Ever? I have. So what?
1: Uh, So this is in the spirit of this episode of One and Done. And, you know, look, I have several other records that I want to bust out for uh, for the vault, but it was just kind of one of these things where uh, I kind of, it was sometimes the, the obvious answer is the right answer. And so I have to cover Blind Melon's self-titled debut album, yes. which I was obsessed with when I was 17 and 18 coming out of high school, which is kind of a perfect record for that because it's a combination of... Coming of age, uh, not being able to reconcile the demons within yourself, and just plain old stalking. Uh, so there's, uh, it's a a very, you know, young guy trying to figure sh- shit out record, or you're in love with the wrong girl kind of record, um, which resonated with me at the time. Now, I made the ridiculous statement one time to Arturo that it was the number one CD that I owned, <laughs> which, to be fair, at the time was probably true. Uh, although, yeah, I mean, my first two CDs ever were Hotel California and the White Album, which, you know, objectively in my old age, yeah, those are better records. But this is a, a, a really, uh, they're, they're a tragic story. And obviously most people know of this record from No Rain, which is just even now, 28 years later, is still ubiquitous. Uh, you know, it's still played on the alternative stations, the classic rock stations, the modern rock stations, the pop stations, Uh, The bars, the commercials, uh, you know, the B-Girl is still, you know, getting like autograph signing gigs or whatever. Uh, So everybody knows that song. But it is, uh, I think, purposely on there as a single because nothing else on it sounds like it. It's more it's interesting because four of the guys were from Mississippi. And Shannon Hoon, who is the singer iconoclast, um, you know lead, you know classic lead singer type of dude is from Indiana, it was uh, buddies with uh, William Bailey, otherwise known as Axel Rose growing up. Uh, so it's really kind of a it's a jammy record, but a really good jammy record. It's It's very structured pop. It's very, uh, again, there's an introspection going on. There's the the, the song "Change," which is just an incredible uh, bluesy soul uh, pop song. I mean, I hate that term, but it, it really fits uh, that song. There's "Tones of Home." There's "Dear Old Dad." Uh, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, Holy man, uh, lot, lots of great stuff on this record. But the the secret weapon for them was Rodgers Nelson, who. Should have been a guitar hero, and should be like a major guitar hero, whether in the jam scene or just uh, or just in general, like mainstream. Uh, just an incredibly melodic uh, lead player that he kind of doubled. I mean, they had a rhythm guitars, but he he was one of those players that could like almost like an Eddie Van Halen. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but I'll make the comparison: who could do the lead guitar? Lines so well that they might as well have been the rhythm parts too, because they were really the hooks. That really the hooks and the riffs of the song, songs, especially in in tones of home. I think is the is the best example of that. Well, even no rainy does it too. But so again, it's like a southern fried uh hippie kind of record with like a real heart and a uh, and a, a darkness under the sheen that again speaks to you know, troubled young men, which I was, uh, you know, I always tell people that from the ages of 16 and 24, and I look back on it that, uh, I was legitimately crazy during those periods, during that period. Uh, and it, you know, look, you know, the, the wonders of psychopharmacology since then, uh, have, uh, helped me, uh, uh, sort of restore some balance. But at that point for imbalanced young guys in their twenties, it's like a, it's like an anthem. <laughs> it's like an anthemic record. Uh so I mean that's really subjective, but it's worth checking out and revisiting because I think in this COVID era, with all the isolation and all the loneliness and all the uncertainty, I think it would resonate uh with a lot of people. Uh, you know, Kid A has made a comeback because of that, but I think Blind Melon would be right. So that's Blind Melon, and we've come to the end of another uh, uh journey of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is episode nine. And so we're going to get to a, a, I guess, which is in the podcast world, quite a landmark. We're going to get to episode 10. Uh, A lot of starter podcasts don't get there. So we are going to get to episode 10 and it will have taken us only four months to get there, uh, which is a pretty nice accomplishment. Uh, Next episode, just to give you a hint, um, we touched on it a little bit, but there was this one band from this one town that became famous in late 1991 that changed everything for well for the betterment of music as a whole but for the detriment of at least 10 artists that who saw their careers crash into the sea or or become just you know high concept jokes all because of this one band becoming rich and famous and we'll we'll get into that in the next episode and that's all we'll say Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude. Stay crude. Stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.